On October 13, 1775, the Continental Congress established what is now known as the United States Navy. In 1972, Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Elmo R. Zumwalt authorized official recognition of October 13th as the Navy's birthday. This year, October 13th, 2021, marks the Navy's 246th birthday. Did you know the United States Navy has its own construction crew? Founded in 1942, the Seabees build military bases, pave roads, and airstrips in combat zones. In today's revisited episode, we speak with United States Navy CB veteran and owner of Broco Oil in Massachusetts, Bob Brown, about his military experience. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Homeland Heroes Salute. My name is Alyssa, and today we have hosting with us Art Briggs. Hi, Art. How are you? Excellent. Thanks for having me again. This is getting to be a habit. I know. Thanks for joining us. Art and I are joined today by Bob Brown. Hi, Bob. How are you today? Good. How are you guys? Thanks for having me tonight. Yeah, thanks for joining. Uh, We're doing good. Can you share with the audience a little bit of your backstory, where you live, your family, um, and what branch you were served in? Sure. Yeah, I was uh, born and raised in Wakefield, Massachusetts. Uh, That's where I went to high school and graduated from uh, in 2000 and went to college for two years. And it was when the world planes went into the World Trade Center that I realized I was more or less wasting my time in college and always had a calling to serve in the military because it was a family tradition starting with my grandfather in World War II. Um, he was Battle of the Bulge, a Bronze Star recipient. Uh, my father and my uncle both served Vietnam Wars, so it was kind of uh, natural for me to serve the country and it was always been in our blood to serve because they're all civil servants and retired now. So it was a very you know, fitting move for me at the time to leave college and, and get that portion of, you know, what I always wanted to do, you know, and, and serve with the Navy Seabees. Uh, so I served with the Seabees from 2002 to two, end of 2005. Um, and when I got out of the Seabees, I became a fireman back here. And then shortly after that, you know, started Broco Oil and, you know, being able to, you know, interact with all these veterans between the police and fire side and prior military. Um, it's been good, a good process for us because we can help veterans that are getting out and find them jobs in and around the area of Massachusetts. And also when I started my business, it was a nice transition to have veterans being discharged and giving them an opportunity to work in the private sector, which, and I own an oil company, started off as home heating oil delivery. So that's a quick little uh, summary of how I became a CB and where I'm at now, which is, um, you know, still a growing business, but thankful to have a lot of support like uh, the Homeland Heroes that um, really pushed my name around the area of Massachusetts and beyond. And Julie's been really, really great advocate for all, the whole veteran community. So uh, definitely a good shout out to you guys for, for doing all this and what you do for the community. Yeah, it's awesome. And we love to hear that. Um, can you elaborate for some people, um, including myself, what a Navy CD is? 
A CB stands for Construction Battalion. Okay. And back in World War II, when they were short engineers, they were gathering up all these private contractors in the civilian world and basically giving them uniforms uh, to, you know, build all these construction sites and, you know, support the military uh, build up in foreign countries. So that's basically how the CB started was uh, private contractors getting thrown into military uniforms. So when I had taken the placement tests and, you know, they gave me a whole list of jobs that, you know, ranged from anywhere from being on a ship to, you know, possibly doing something with like UCT on a lot of construction teams. So CBs was, you know, really a good niche. If you want to learn a trade and carry that trade outside to the civilian world after you're done serving, um, you can apply that skill set and, and land yourself a nice job, you know, almost instantly. So the Helmets of Hot App program was one that was being pushed around Boston prior to me signing up for the CV. So I knew going in that there was, uh, you know, job opportunities available when I do get out. So that being in a construction unit, I mean, you learn every single aspect of the trades. I myself was a steel worker, so I never welded, but you know, the Navy certified me in all various types of welding, brazing, soldering, uh, and basically steel erection for, you know, bridges and rapid runway repairs. So they gave me a, a really, really good toolbox to bring back to the civilian world. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, so you're, let's rewind to 2000. You're in college and uh, 2001, the, the World Trade Centers and the Pentagon are hit and the flight goes down in Pennsylvania. And how old are you at that point? I was 19, 20 years old at that time, 2001. Yeah, 19. And I was in English class. I remember it like clear as day as does everybody that was around that time it kind of the world stopped for a good portion of that day and that's when i realized right then and there that you know everything changes in a second and that was the second that changed my life because i realized i was kind of spinning the wheels being in college going through the motions wasn't really motivated much other than just do homework and you know do what college kids do and most of the time, it's, you know, possibly getting into trouble and whatnot. So I was really not making the best use of my time. And uh, that was the spark that I needed that kind of was the catalyst to everything that, you know, has brought me to here today. So I look back on that. And when you could say you can turn something, you know, positive out of a really terrible situation, that was, you know, the situation that changed my life. Nice. So Battle of the Bulge, your grandfather served, I'm assuming he was Army or uh, Marines? Army. Army. Yeah. And your, Army your father and- your father and your uncle, they were they both served in Vietnam. Yes. And which 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 branch of service were they in? My uncle was a Marine uh infantry. My father was Navy assigned uh, as a boiler mate. Nice. So you followed in your father's footsteps with the branch of service, but the, the call to service is a, is a family tradition. It's something that was ingrained. What was it like as 19, 20 year old Bob uh, ready to ditch college uh, and go serve our nation uh, while we're at war? What was the, what was the 
you know, from recruiting to uh, basic training, what was your process like? Uh, the process was fitting for where I was at in that time, which was basically straighten me out, give me responsibilities, give me a lot of discipline. Uh, right away when in boot camp, uh, it was the first time I was assigned a position, the master at arms, which is, you know, basically putting you in charge of all these recruits. So you're accountable for getting them mustered up ready in the morning at every you know given time that the master chief gives you to, you know, form up. And that includes shower time. So you kind of put in a position of authority, but it's more or less informal authority. But it was the first time where others' actions would be, you know, I'd have to take the blow if something wasn't done. So it was, that was a blessing in disguise being assigned that position because that was my first real taste of, okay, I'm not just taking care of me anymore. I'm taking care of all these other recruits and, you know, really functioning as a team is, is the main aspect of in boot camp. You realize you're not an individual, you know, you have to be as good as your weakest link and you got to make sure that that weakest link isn't really showcased that much. If, your team's good enough to support them and carry them through. So uh, that was a very, you know, good leadership experience that I took and carried on throughout the rest of my time in the military and into the fire department and start my business. Yeah. As a businessman, I, I imagine that first initial uh, shot of leadership there uh, has to be something you lean on as a business owner, your weakest link being, uh, you know, your, your stability for being a representation of your business. Uh, how is the leadership that you learned in the Navy impacting you as a business owner? It's, it's basically formed everything, the whole structure that I have implemented today and you know, as a chain of command and as we grow, the chain of command grows, but everybody reports to somebody, including myself, which is obviously my employees and my customers. So everybody knows in my company that, you know, even though it's a chain of command, it's not authoritative command where, you know, we tell others what to do. It's a, more or less a give and take, uh, especially in this generation, you know, um, the tough group has been the millennials, but they're hard workers. You just got to basically, you know, it's situational leadership. So everybody is as an individual, you have to bring a different leadership tactic to that person um, and how you lead as a group, you know, basically is, is another thing in itself, but grooming each individual to adhere to how we do things is, is our first and primary concern. And then we form them into the team element. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Uh, backing up to the the basic training, you you grew up in Wakefield, and I, I forgot where you went to college. Can you remind me? Yeah, UMass Lowell. Okay, so you're, you're kind of local. At that point, had you been anywhere outside of the uh, New England area? Other than a trip to Disney World when I was eight years old, I have never left Massachusetts. Uh, okay. Because more or less, this, this was our our bubble that not a lot of people venture from. Okay. So as a 20 year old and you're, you're, you're in your new England bubble, everybody's a Patriots fan. Everybody loves the Red Sox and you, yeah. you get into great lakes, uh, Michigan, and there's people from all walks of life, all different places, all different types of traditions. And you're in a, you're in a big bay with a lot of people. What was, what, what was it like for you? 
I mean, it was it was good to experience other cultures and and how those those mingled all together. And the beauty of it is when you're in a in a large group like a battalion, you know, you can learn so much from all these guys. Uh, we had some fun with it, and a lot of the uh, you know bonding is just kind of we would break each other's you know balls here and there and have a good time with it. But everybody always had this. Uh, you know, thing against the uh, Patriots and the Red Sox at the time, because that was when, you know, Tom Brady was coming up into his, you know, start of many Super Bowls. So we were in San Diego when uh, the Patriots won the Super Bowl and also when the Red Sox won the World Series. So, uh, but it's funny to see how many people were really Red Sox Nation fans out in San Diego, more so than like the Padres. Uh, re- you know, realizing that there's a better following outside New England for, you know, the fans. With having so many family members that were part of the military, what were their reaction to you joining? Uh, they weren't surprised at all. My my father w- was naturally happy that I made that decision. My mother w- was not so happy. But it was more, I, I think, expected of me at some point to do that. They were just, it was only a matter of time. I think it, it, I always spoke about it when I was a kid growing up and how I, you know, had a sequence of events planned from when I was in third grade, which was go in the military and then I'll be a firefighter. And like that was, the rest was history. So uh, it was, um, you know, very, very well expected out of my family members to see me drop out of college at that point and, you know, sign up for the Navy. Mm. So once, once you got back uh, from, you graduated from basic training, you said you went to San Diego. Is that right? I, I went to Chicago, Illinois for boot camp. And I was stationed Gulfport, Mississippi with NMCB seven. That's a lot. Navy. That's a lot like new England, right? <laughs> yeah. It was I, when they gave me a choice of, East Coast and West Coast, I assumed East Coast, I'd find myself in Virginia, maybe even Connecticut or Rhode Island. And when they gave me orders to Gulfport, Mississippi, I honestly, I was like, I thought that was the South, but I guess in the military, it's nope, that's East Coast and that's where you're going. So I I thought I was in the middle of nowhere. But after getting down there, you know, I found a love for the South and all the culture down there. I, you know, visited very often, uh, go to new Orleans a lot. So it was a, definitely, uh, a shock to me when I got those orders, but I ended up falling in love with it when I was there. Yeah. Two different types of seafood boils, right. From, uh, new Orleans to, to Boston. Yeah. I tell you, I like the crawfish and everything else, but I would, our lobsters up here blow there are lobsters out of the water. I thought I was getting, you know, a main lobster. It's a pretty, you know, prestigious thing up here. And you figure that standards everywhere. And it's like, Nope, not the case. So everything else is great. It's just the lobsters. I more or less stick to only new England. I'll eat those. That's good. Yeah. Well, I'm waiting for you to jump in on that one. On the lobster. Yeah. Something you got, you got to <laughs> support your, your uh, new England habitat up here. You know, I, I grew up in Maine, so I'm completely a New England girl. I was born in Mass, grew up in Maine, spent my 20s in 
New Hampshire and I'm back in Boston now in my late twenties. And lobster's the one thing I could, I would not miss if I ever moved away. <laughs> Until you had like a Caribbean warm water lobster. You'd, <laughs> you wish you'd, well, maybe. That's when I really was, was shocked. I was like, what is this lobster? And why does it look so strange? Like that's a lobster. I'm like, that is it's not really a lobster. Small, right? <laughs> it was uh, it was all different colors it was you know looked like a rainbow and it tasted terrible and it's got no claws <laughs> correct yeah. See, I was it was very claw. very strange if i ate lobster it was only the claws like strictly the claws still kind of is today so that, that wouldn't work for me maybe i would miss lobster yeah. a little bit yeah, you would if you if you just went there and just started ordering lobsters over when they said, "Oh, we have a, here's a seafood place." You would instantly fall back in love with your main lobsters. <laughs> um, yeah, probably. So, who or what were you leaving behind when you decided to join? Uh, at the time, I was leaving behind my immediate family. I have a brother, a sister, uh, mom, dad, and I was. I, I just got back together with um, my high school sweetheart, sweetheart, my wife, who's now my wife, Angela. Ooh. So we Ooh. we had broken up in college for you know a short period of time. But when she found out I was making the move, I, you know, she more or less was like, "Good, you 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 need this in your life." So um, you know, I was a little bit lost, so to say, as a college. Uh, sophomore at the time, just kind of, again, spinning my wheels. So uh, again, it was probably the best move I have ever made in my life was to drop everything and just go serve. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Um, what, yeah. Did you have any skills or traits that best prepared you for your service? Yeah. So in the CBs, I, I jumped at it because at the time, at the time and prior to during high school, I always kind of had an entrepreneurial kick in me and I'd always do random odd end jobs for, you know, building someone's patio or repointing someone's chimney. And I'd kind of always take on jobs that were beyond my skill set, but I, I take them on anyways and try to be as confident as I possibly could to assure the customer it's going to get done right. And mm -hmm. most of the time it'd be done kind of half-assed as I'm looking back at it, but it was more or less me wanting to take on these challenges and, and try to get something going and make a business out of it. So I had a nice little masonry side gig going on all the way through. And that was what led me to the CBs when they said I could have access to all these you know, trades and learn a specific one. So uh, I, I did want to be a plumber, but that was all taken up. So steel worker was something that I never did. I never welded before or knew anything about really steel, but uh, that's why I selected it. So I could, you know, learn more about it, get certified and add that, you know, to my toolbox there. That's awesome. Yeah, it was uh, a lot of people don't know about the CB. So I, I always like to go in depth about what it is, because I think it relates to a lot of these kids in high school that don't know if they're cut out to be college students. And if they're not, and if they they know that they're just going to be you know, work, workers and work with their hands and do manual labor, you can make a great living, especially in this day and age where a lot of these 
trades are, are having a lack of participation in apprenticeship programs. So yeah. they're starting to be lucrative for younger kids that want to just work hard and learn a trade and like electricians, plumbers, they're kind of um, hard to find these days. Yep. That's, that's absolutely true. Um, I got a couple of friends that are, it um, took them a few years after high school, but they finally decided to go into a trade and it's the best thing that they could have done. A lot of the companies that we work with, you know, we sub out because we do large scale commercial projects too. Um, they have great pension programs, retirement plans, full insurance, and these guys are getting top dollar for, you know, just a, a manual entry level position. I have a question in, in regards to as you grew up and you talked with uh, your grandfather or, or you didn't or you talked to your uncles about uh, Vietnam and your, or your father. Do you have any like uh, stories that stuck with you that kind of like embraced you or, or even like molded something in your character that you, uh, that positioned you to serve in our military? You know, I, it's funny that you asked this question because the answer is no. My grandfather, my uncle, my father, they, they never spoke about, anything they actually kept things very close to the chest it's not till kind of now in my mid-30s that you know you get little pieces here and there but those those guys are you know a different breed where they more or less would come home they you know they just suck it up they don't talk about it you know some of them you know have you know demons that they're battling every day um which is what we would call PTSD because uh, it just was more or less something that was there, but they just never addressed it until, you know, the last 20 years. So the, you know, my father, you know, raised us pretty strict, you know, pretty tough. And his father was probably three times as tough as my old man was on us. So um, I would, it, it, it did, to a point where it's, we know we don't get out of line with the old man of my grandfather, but um, now looking back on it, it all makes sense. Yeah, that, that does make sense as you put it in perspective. Uh, some incredible people to follow in their footsteps. Yeah, my grandfather was the one I, I learned most. I mean, he has passed, um, but after learning about all these things and the awards that he had and everything he, he did uh, in the military and outside of the military, uh, he was uh, part of the uh, VFW, and he was in uh, Norman Prince Legion down in Melrose, Massachusetts. He was the head commander there. So he did a lot for you know, all those guys that he served with and all the World, World War II veterans. But he never spoke about anything. He did, Once when he got out of the service, he became a pipe fitter for General Electric and you know, he'd do his thing after work and he was just a man of routine and didn't really say too much. Just your, just your run on the mill, regular citizen showing up to work. Well, angry citizen. <laughs> we, we always used to joke around that he was always, uh, always mad at something. Was he, was he always mad or just carry a grimace? I think it was more or less just carry a grimace. Us, I have... 38 cousins. So all of our, us cousins would be afraid of our grandfather because we weren't sure of, you know, what mood he was in, you know, for sure. For sure. Well, that's an incredible story and journey to, uh, 
to serve in our nation, uh, coming from New England, just a history that's not even spoken of in in your lineage. And, you know, the, the towers fall and, you know, everybody, I think at some point was like, Hey, I want to, I want to do something. Uh, I think most of our listeners that are, that are 35 and, and up are going, yeah, I remember having that, you know, that twinge of, if I want to do something, but you, you took the steps and went into the recruiting station and, and joined and served our nation. So, uh, on behalf of Homeland Heroes, thank you for your service to the United States Navy and our military. Appreciate you. Yes, no, and and thank you, thank you. I appreciate your service as well. So, it was one when I went into the recruiters, I thought it was going to be such a quick process. Saying, okay, great, these guys are going to get me right in the door in the next couple of weeks, and I'm off. And then I realized it's like a wait half the time. So I had to wait almost ten months to get a slot for boot camp. Bob, are you telling me that you have you have to wait in the military? There's a thing called waiting. <laughs> it's hurry up and wait. So that was my first hurry up and wait experience. Was okay. I'm going to go to the recruiter, and I'm I'm going out as soon as possible. And as soon as possible was ten months. And I was trying to expedite the process. In the meantime, because I was still in school, but I didn't want to be there. But they they said that's as soon as we can get you in. And they put me, I said, well, put me on the list of a cancellation list. If someone doesn't make the cut or they drop out, I want to be slated for that spot. But I ended up waiting the whole 10 months. So that's why the 2002, uh, you know, was the enlistment date. Bob took his CB can-do attitude and went on to found Broco Oil in Massachusetts. Broco Oil has been awarded the number one veteran-owned business over the last few years. They service residential areas in Massachusetts and New Hampshire and commercial areas in Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont. They are passionate about giving back, and they proudly offer discounts to veterans, firefighters, police officers, teachers, municipal workers, emergency medical service workers, and senior citizens. You can learn more by visiting brocooil.com or find them on Facebook. Uh, For this portion... We're going to dive into um, your service and what you were doing in the service. So, all right, let's do it. Yeah, uh, what were some of your expectations versus reality? Like, how how were those? How were your expectations versus reality different once once you started serving? My, my expectations was I thought it was going to be twenty four seven. You to be on point, pretty much not well rested, but being able to perform duties like you're fully uh, coming off an eight hour sleep. So I, I, w- I was expecting to push myself hard and to have very little, no sleep. And it was kind of the exact opposite. It was, it was, you had a pretty, pretty good structure there and you had your flex time after boot camp. You could have you know, your liberties for the weekends after your, work duties while you're in home port on base. It's more or less like a regular eight hour job after three 30 you're off and you know, doing your own thing. So, and you also, if you wanted to, you get, you can figure out a way to get eight hours of sleep that at night, if you weren't out, you know, on the base or out on the town drinking, like a lot of the sailors do. So uh, it was, it was kind of more or less like home, but you're in, military clothing and 
you, you have to be responsible and accountable for everything you do. So if you, if you get out of line, they, they quickly put you back in line. So that was, uh, my expectations was to be in the military bearing stance at all times, but you, you, you could still have a good civilian life while being and serving in the military, which is what I liked about it. It wasn't as hard as a lot of people think it is. It's not, it's not all, you know, lining up and marching and drilling. It's laid back there. The drill instructors are regular people, just like everybody else in the civilian world. It's like dealing with the boss though, you know, versus a drill instructor. So you talked about being, um, and remind me again what CB stands for? Uh, construction Battalion. So, And you got to choose that when you started serving, correct? Yes, I got to choose from a list of trades that were available in CBs. So not, sometimes not all trades are open at the time if the, if the jobs are filled up. So they have a quota for each, each rating. And once when that quota is eaten up, they'll block that rating so like engineers were locked up uh, those are the guys that would shoot the grades you know read blueprints but uh, pipe fitters welders builders uh, those were positions that were available at the time when I was signing up so you could pick whichever one and if you want to wait long enough like to hurry up and wait with everything in the military you could uh, eventually get the position you want if you're willing to wait that time to go in and serve. Sure. So I have never served. Um, I don't have anyone intimately um, kind of in my circle that has served no immediate family members or really close friends. But so you, you go through boot camp. How long is boot camp? Boot camp was, for me was eight weeks, uh, which is fairly a short boot camp. Okay. compared to army and the marines uh, a lot of these guys are in boot camp for four to six months yeah so then and it's more 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 of the infantry driven branches are the ones that need that extra time to really get these guys qualified sure. and you know rifle machine guns and whatnot mm -hmm. so from there so you're in boot camp for eight weeks or so what extra schooling do you have to go through in order to become a CV? So they call that an advanced school, which, or an A school for short. So right after boot camp, everybody that has a job, even if you're wanting to go special forces and you get washed out, you have to fall back into a job position. So a lot of the guys that were going special operations uh, fell back on the CB rating just in case they get washed out. They they get to at least do something that's fairly cool in their eyes. That's exciting. Uh, so the A school was kind of the tail end of what a regular Marine or Army boot camp would be because that's when you actually learn what your trade's going to be. So instead of being an infantryman in boot camp and staying that extra time, we would depart from Chicago and then we'd all split up over the country for whatever... CBA school you're going to. So the steel workers and the builders went right down to Gulfport, Mississippi, which is when they said East Coast or West Coast. And I had two choices. It was either Port Wyneme, California, or I didn't know that it was Gulf Coast, uh, Gulfport, Mississippi. So my East Coast was Gulfport. What was it like as a young man uh, showing up to Gulfport, your first duty assignment, 
uh, fresh out of A school. And what was it like moving to a place you've never been before? Where did you live? Uh, what were the people like? What were, what was your battalion like? How did that go? Yeah, it was, it was awesome. I flew in right after new year at nighttime and I'm just looking at the landscape and not being able to really survey it well while I'm flying in, um, uh, realized that everything was really flat. Um, totally different demographics and what I'm used to up in the Boston area. Uh, used to crazy drivers down there. Everything's, everything's very, very much slowed down as compared to the temple up here. Everybody's in a rush up here to go somewhere. So I, I liked the atmosphere and the people down there because they were so polite and coming from Boston, New York, you, you know, we're called mass holes up here. And I could see now that, you know, living in the South and coming back up here, why they would use that term for us. But um, it's more or less, we're just a very high, high speed, high functioning city. And, you know, we, we kind of drive and function off chaos up there. Everybody's always in a rush to go somewhere down there. It was pretty, pretty relaxed. So it was, uh, I I really liked that aspect of being down in Gulfport. Um, The food was a little, you know, different for me at the time they they like to put a lot of butter in there every portion of their meal so i had to get used to that and i never had grits before until i went to Gulfport. so they opened me up to all that but uh realizing thinking that Gulfport being the southern state is is always warm i when i went in there in january uh, i was you know you could see my breath coming off the plane you know, stepping off the plane i was like wow it's 30 five degrees out I was shocked so it actually gets fairly cold down there and a lot of people know that so that was one thing that felt like home when I stepped off the plane that I said okay this place won't be that bad until we got to the summertime and then I realized holy shit this place is the most humid place I've ever been to (laughs) you can you could shower step out nice and clean 7 a.m and once when you step out the door you're instantly soaking wet. It's 100% humidity. So they, Bob, they got extreme Bob. temperature differences. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, Bob, I got, you mentioned grits, and every person that I know in the military coming from the, the north or the northeast, uh, they have their first grits story. Do you have a first-time story for grits that's humorous? Yeah, when I first got it, it was it was plain, it was unsweetened, and I and I'm eating it with, uh, you know, it was a very strange texture. So then, someone had mentioned, oh, just put sugar in it, and I just remember putting like a half a thing of, of, of sugar in it just to sweeten it up a little bit. And uh, you know, then I go, then they're like, no, you should have added butter. To, I'm like, I don't even know how to eat this. So is it sugar, butter? You tell me. I gotta figure something out. But it was a military portion of grit so as you know you could use that as mortar in between bricks to build something so it was uh the, the consistency in my first taste of grits wasn't uh wasn't probably what it should have been i uh i was in basic training and they they threw grits on my plate and i i seen cream of wheat and cream of wheat is something that i grew up with and you add uh sugar butter and you enjoy it like that. And I, I yeah. remember sitting down and I, I put some butter and some sugar in it. And there was a, a guy from Louisiana next to me. 
and he said, boy, what are you doing to them grits? And I was like, what, what are, what are grits, you know? And I look over and he's got his scrambled eggs in there. He's got sausage in there and salt and pepper and hot sauce. And I'm like, that's the weirdest thing to do to cream, cream of wheat that I've ever seen in my life. He's like, that's, that's not cream of wheat. It's grits, son. And I'm like, okay, yeah. <laughs> you did it all wrong. All wrong. All wrong. Now, now yeah, the shrimp and grits they, is a big thing in the South and it's delicious. Yeah, they they know their food down there. I'll, I'll give them that. After after being there for a couple of years, they they know how to eat. I've only ever so, had them once, and it was at like a buffet at like Disney World or something. And I think I was maybe eleven or twelve. I was like, I thought it was cream of wheat too, or something, because that's exactly what it looks like. And I tried it, expecting it to be really sweet, and it was not. Every southerner yeah, listening to this is dying. You know. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's tough stuff. You, they have to like whip it off the spatula to get it to get it onto my plate in the CB cafeteria. So they were probably making it all wrong. But I just remember trying to get it off the spatula. She's shaking it down onto my plate, and I'm like, are "You awesome. serving me? Are you serving me cement right now, or what is this?" <laughs> oh, that's awesome! So you're down in Gulfport, and uh, wh- where do you live? Uh, your your uh, your new assignment. What is what is your living accommodations, and like what is the tempo of the unit? What what are they telling you to get ready for? What, what's it like? A school was was pretty good. It it was we were with a bunch of steel workers that were going to be going through the stu- school, and when I say a bunch, there was only nine nine of us to go through this advanced welding school which was a 12-week program and you get certified in all all different variations of welding and then you also learn how to read steel blueprints and whatnot so it was you know two or three guys to a room but those rooms were large and you have your community washer dryer it was a nice change from boot camp where someone's always hovering over you so the Living quarters were fairly good. It, you know, we'd have to muster every morning at four thirty in the morning to do our morning PT run, and you know, it, that consisted of just running around the base, which was like four or five miles, and then doing some push-ups and sit-ups. So at the time, I was, a, you know, kind of a gung-ho and hard charge. So I, was, a lot of us would say, okay, after PT, we'll go do our workout, and then we'll go to work because it was more or less a warm up but you know looking back on it i should all right maybe i maybe i would be struggling in that 5 mile run now so different times but it it was it was a good routine to get up early and and just get into that habit of you know getting ahead of the day you know getting all your responsibilities that people either push off or not do at all and get them out of the way before you actually start your work day so I, I, I carried that routine on to every aspect of my life in the civilian world. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a good, it was a good living situation there. Now we also worked with the army Corps of engineers that are pretty similar to what the CBs do. Uh, they do a lot of, um, demo though with live ordinances and whatnot. So, uh, somewhat different, but, I used to watch these guys and then, and the Navy's pretty laid back. You know, these, these guys work hard, but they know, they know how to play hard. And I used to look at the army engineers and they have these guys out 
Saturdays, Sundays, like formation, doing PT. And these guys weren't even in boot camp. These are regular working guys like we are. And I, I just used to look out at them and say, okay, I, I definitely picked the right service because <laughs> doing that, that would, that would demotivate me if I was doing that every day. But they, you know, when they're out in the field and especially on deployments, the army is military bearing, like they are just zoned in and it's because what they do every day, they're just, you know, programmed that way. Um, you know, and they, again, it's, each leadership style is different from across the branches, as I'm sure you know, Art. It's, um, you know, Army to Navy. It's, yeah, same structure, but there's a different pace to it. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, my brother was in the Army, so I kind of, we, we share stories, and he was my younger brother, so I always ask him. And, I again, I every time he tells me a story, I'm like, oh so happy I was in the Navy. <laughs> I, said, I don't know. I don't know. I might, I, I might've maybe gotten in trouble. I don't know. But these guys, um, you know, they, they would, they would push them a lot. What's that like your brother being army, you being Navy? Uh, was there a little bit of rivalry, a little bit of crap talking going on? Yeah, a little bit. I, I think my brother kind of, you know, mirroring everything that I, you know, I've done and it, me mirroring my old man. So it's, you know, that sequence, but, um, my brother, you know, is a, you know, very, uh, independent guy. He's a hardworking guy. So he has always paved his own way. So I think, you know, if, if I'm going Navy, you know, he's going to take another route, but we always seem to, you know, meet in the middle somewhere, you know, cause we both served in, you know, the military and now, my brother's a Cambridge fireman. Uh, went in, I'm a Chelsea fireman. And then I started Broco Oil. My brother started uh, what's called SM Brown Heating and Cooling. So he supports, he's a, like, like a sister company, but he owns and operates it. And he supports my heating oil customers with service and HVAC work. So we, we work hand in hand, but we you know maintain separate businesses. Is the Army Navy game a big point of contention? Do you guys get together? I, I can only imagine that would be a little bit of fun. You know, he and he, he's a big football guy. He was, you know, at a few tryouts with uh, a couple of NFL teams after college. So he was a very, very good athlete. And I would be surprised. If, I mean, you'd be very surprised to hear that he, he really doesn't watch football. So as much as he played his whole life. Uh, as he says, he's always, uh, he's too busy working. So he, he's another one who got programmed in on the army way. And every day is just a regular working day, even Sundays when it's like Sundays are a time for us. No, Sundays are time to get shit done. So my brother carried that over with him. And I mean, he works like a maniac and I, I honestly don't know how he works the way he does and, and still is as energetic as he is. So that's one good thing going back to Army Navy. They're, they, they're just dialed in. They're motivated. And every day is a working day for them. That's quality stuff. Yeah, I mean, as a business yeah. owner yourself, you, you also have to kind of digest that and work every day, I'm sure, at some level. Yeah, it, I, it, it, it's kind of a – I'm in a unique position because when I started my business, it, it was filling in the off days, the time off I had at the firehouse. and now it's really, you know, not just filling in, it's kind of absorbing every single day that I'm off 
duty. So I work two 24 hour shifts a week at the firehouse. And then I work another 60 hours at Broco oil. So it, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's spun out of control quick when I thought it was just going to be like, a, Oh, this is a seasonal thing. And I'll just deliver heating oil in the wintertime on my days off from the firehouse. And it turned into, um, okay, no, we're not only working winter, we're going to work spring, summer, and fall, and we're going to deliver all sorts of fuels, not just heating oil. So, uh, again, that was what was the initial plan, and it turned out to be completely different. But yeah, we just sure. adapt, and over, adapt and overcome, so I, uh, it became a norm. Semper Gumby. Yeah, I just I just embrace it every day. Hey, brother, when you're talking about um, being down there in Gulfport, your battalion is sending people to Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, I don't know if you went or if some of your friends went. What was it like to watch people go and come back from from those types of missions? Yeah, it's just like with any. Anybody going over, especially into Iraq and Afghanistan, that was, you know, the conflict at the time that we were in. So uh, I, I was in a battalion made up of 650 guys, and my battalion was slated. Uh, our, our regular duty station was Guam, but, you know, that's where they just default if there's no wartime activity going on. But everybody ended up going to uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Then they broke off certain detachments uh, to serve different, you know, sites across the world. You know, a lot of guys got to go to Africa or Thailand. Uh, some went to Japan. Uh, I, I was one of the fortunate few that was selected to go to a special job site that we had. And then, it, believe it or not, it ended up being a stateside deployment of all, all things, too. So uh, I was initially slated to go to Afghanistan. And, you know, a lot of, you know, anxiety from the group, not ever going, you know, anywhere. This was our first deployment. So I came home to basically say goodbye to my family and, uh, you know, tell them I'll see you in six months. And then I got the call from one of my friends saying, you know, who the hell do you know to get, you know, you got a, you got on a detachment. I'm saying, what are you talking about? A detachment to where? They said, you're going to San Diego. I'm like, no, something's, something's off there. Last minute, they peeled off 30 guys from main body battalion to um, build a Navy SEAL Team 1's armory out in Coronado Island. And I was uh, one of those guys being a steel worker, but had uh, builder experience to lay block for this project. So they were doubling up rates to make like a fast track project out of this. So fortunate for me, I was able to, you know, stay safe stateside and, you know, build a, a nice armory for, for the SEALs. But um, coming back and all my buddies that went to Iraq and Afghanistan, they, you know, came back with you know a lot of stories. Others didn't want to talk about it, but uh, definitely changed them and everybody, because we all support each other as one family. So, you know, here in, you know, a lot of mortar attacks, just many unknowns out there put guys coming back home on more or less high alert all the time, which was hard to, you know, for them to stand down even when they're back home. So a little adjustment period and some took longer than others. And some are probably still dealing with the adjustment to this day. It's just, you know, 
having a community to support you, which is kind of what, what we're doing here now, you know, we're supporting others, you know, and letting, raising awareness to, you know, everything that these guys are exposed to. So when you got, when you were de- deployed to um, San Diego, which I've been on that Island right next to the, um, the base. <clears throat> so it's kind of neat to to know that I now know someone who's, uh, who helped build it. Um, yeah. Who, so when did you and your wife get married? So you guys are high school sweethearts got back together after or while you were um, enlisting. Did you get yep, married? Right, 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 right before I enlisted and went in, we got back together. And then I um, proposed to her while I was in the military when I came home one day on leave. And um, yeah, we play, We got married. I, I got out at the end of 2005 and we got married in 2006. So how was that being stateside versus going overseas. Um, how was that in regards it, to talking back with them? It was, uh, yeah, it was good. I, I, it was, you know, you're still on a, on a deployment. So, you know, you can't just get up and leave a deployment. So leave was more or less froze for that duration. But, you know, we also had a project that we had to complete in six months. So that was a definitely a work hard, play hard situation being in San Diego uh, because Tijuana was right up, right down the street from us. So when you get a bunch of Navy guys, and at the time there was unrestricted passing through Tijuana, so we would go there and you know on our on our time and you know get cheap booze and forget the night that I you know, not remembering much the next day. But it was um you know you still got to wake up and be responsible to get on time for work the next day at 5 a.m. So uh, it was definitely a, a challenge being in a great atmosphere like that. And then, you know, a lot of us were, you know, would talk to certain guys, you know, they'd get letters here and there with how main body's doing in Iraq, Afghanistan. So, you know, we realized you just keep reminding yourself, you know, you know, God does things for various reason. And, you know, he put, puts people in different places and, you know, whatever, if you're, destined to be in San Diego and like these guys were over in Afghanistan, you let it be. Um, we had a close hit where our chief was involved in that tent bombing in Moselle. And he was a chief that me and, you know, one of my buddies that is now working for me up here in Massachusetts, he's a veteran who I brought up from new Orleans a couple months ago. Um, you know, he was our, you know, immediate, you know, officer that we reported to. And I looked at him, I'm like, you know, it, any one of us could have been right next to him because he was a builder. We were steel workers and, you know, we would, we would have been in that tent. So it could have been any one of us. And that's where I look back and say, you know, certain things happen for certain reasons. You know, we all sign the blank check, but it's, uh, you know, some get cashed too soon. And that was one that hit home for all of us when we were in San Diego. And that's when I was like, you know, this, this isn't fair that we get to be here. And, you know, we, we just lost our chief over in a tent bombing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so that's one of the things veterans struggle with is uh, survivor survivor's guilt. And uh, do you do you think you or uh, even some of your fellow sailors felt maybe maybe a little bit of that in that process? If you don't mind talking about it, yeah, I mean, for probably to a point for me, for me, and I, it's more or less of what what goes along with a veteran even a first responder, you know, a lot of these guys are type A personalities. So 
they um they won't show too much and you know how you cope with these incidents are usually you know with with some you know really rough humor so to say that but it airs it out in a different way they and these guys when they do that and us knowing and recognizing that it's it's a way that they cope with it you know they you know make jokes but that's that's the name of the game if you can't you know get over it and you know look beyond an incident and you know move ahead persevere you know you get stuck in in looking back which is the worst thing you could do so uh, that's why having these group of guys that you can all, you know, bounce things off of and not, you know, have any uh, walls up when you do decide to open up, you know, to what you're feeling. You know, it's usually cleared up pretty quick with a couple of open ears and just guys that have kind of been there, done that in those situations to, you know, give these guys some moral support. But it it really didn't, you know, I, I it just comes with the nature just as being a firefighter. It's you know, it's one of those things where we know that every time we go into a fire, one of us might not come out, you know, but we, we wouldn't stop doing our job. Even if we know, Hey, we might, we're going to lose somebody in this building. We, we still go in and we go in there and do our job. So at the end of the day, it's really, doesn't really change much. It's just, it's, it's kind of a known thing going into serving anywhere that you, you know, you're, you risk, you could risk everything and lose everything. In the third part of the interview with Bob Brown, he talks about how he gives back to his community and how he created his business, Broco Oil. Uh, We're going to dive into um, coming home. Um, What has happened since your service um, and where you are in life today? Um, All right. Did you have any challenges in coming home? No, I, I went into the military knowing I was going to serve, but I also had an exit plan kind of already devised and going back to what I was talking about my, on the first part of the podcast is, you know, growing up, I always knew I wanted to do two things and that was be in the military and be a firefighter. So I, I already had that in mind saying, okay, I'm going to go serve. And, and while I'm in serving, I'm going to, you know, take every civil service test that comes along and, you know, hopefully be able to have a, you know, be able to interview for a job when I get home and put myself in line to, you know, be a candidate. So I took a makeup exam for the civil service in 2004. And those results came out and I ended up topping the fire department list. So timing couldn't have worked out any better for me because uh, I was you know, getting out at the end of 2005 and I got a card for one open position as a fireman uh, starting in uh, October. So it was kind of like, it was right on the cusp. I I would have went over a little bit. I was supposed to get out in November, but um, you know, when I showed the military and went through the uh, hiring process, the military actually was super lenient with letting me you know, make trips up to Massachusetts to do, you know, a physical test, uh, interview, a medical exam, and then a psychological exam. So a lot of people think that, you know, the military is going to tie your feet down when it comes time to get discharged and, you know, go out into the civilian world. But it's actually the exact opposite. If you let your commanding officer know, and it doesn't matter what branch it is, 
these guys are there to help you. And they know that not everybody that serves is going to stay in there for a full 20 years. So if they're getting you for three or four years, they're going to do everything they can to help you be successful on the outside, which is what the Navy CBs, they, they help me, you know, make the hiring process as seamless as possible by giving me liberties to travel home and, and, you know, do all these uh, criteria steps to getting, you know, the full, full job as a fireman. So I tell everybody, you know, that's going into the military that has kind of the same roadmap that I was following, uh, you know, when a lot of these guys in Massachusetts follow the plan of, okay, I'm going to serve. And then natural, you know, transition of service is to serve as a police officer, a fireman, um, you know, municipal worker, kind of all the same thing, but it, they were very, very helpful in, you know, helping me make that transition. So I had a, basically a job waiting for me uh, when I got out with, with really no downtime of work. So that was, that was one good thing. And, you know, then I also, at the same time I had plan B, which was go into the helmets, the hard hat program, uh, which is available, not just to CVs, to any mil veteran in Massachusetts that, you know, is looking for a job, getting out of the military. There's a whole list of jobs in the construction, Boston construction industry that you can get into a union as a um, first year apprenticeship and learn a trade or, you know, pick up a trade that you were doing in the military. So uh, in conjunction with the getting on the fire department, I got into the iron workers, local seven and was uh, in that program and as a uh, second year apprentice for that union. So um, Massachusetts had a lot of great options for veterans coming home to kind of select from. And uh, even if a guy was lost, you can kind of get into a labor position job just to, you know, just to keep, keep them on their feet and keep them busy. Cause that's the biggest thing with any veteran getting out, they're used to a certain pace. And then when they come home, it just stops. And you get, you have a serious problem on your hand when a veteran gets bored because usually, you know, you can go one of two directions, you know, sometimes it's not good. You know, these guys will, will find time to do something. So, but if you put them to work, they're going to be the best workers you have. When did you decide to create your own business? So I, again, had that entrepreneurial bug in me from prior to the military through high school. I, you know, had a really good set of tools to bring into the civilian world. And I was working various jobs. It was right after I got graduated from the fire department. Uh, basic training there is when I started looking into seeing what I could do on my own, you know, to uh, just to fill in my off days and have little side jobs. And I, I thought I wanted to be in the concrete industry, you know, doing walkways or even concrete cutting. I was kind of working various jobs and then it got slow in the fall. And I, someone had mentioned, you should get your CDL and just, you know, work for a few months driving an oil truck. So I started working for a small local company. And then I, you know, that, that's when the light bulb went off. I was like, wow, this is something that I, you know, could work around the fire department with. It could be very seasonal. I could just work in the winter time and then 
you know, park the truck and enjoy my summers and just be a fireman. So the following year, I took out a SBA loan. Small Business Administration uh, lent me $25,000 in unsecured loan because I didn't have a house or, you know, anything to put up. I had really nothing to my name as I was just getting going in life at 23. Uh, at that time, I was 24 going on 25. So uh, they took a shot on me and they, they did that. There was uh, through a veteran, it was a veteran program that would link you to different banks that uh, had these loans available. So um, we were able to you know, find a, a bank that would give us this loan. And I bought a used oil truck for $7,000 and I went into business uh, 2007, October of 2007 is, uh, you know, I had one truck and just, you know, I was work driving and delivering oil. My wife was in the office. Uh, she was the office manager, but there was only, you know, two employees, me and my wife. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's kind of how we got started. My wife, you know, still, she's, you know, my partner in everything I do. So now, um, now her role transitioned in, into a very large role and now she's our CFO. Um, and she, you know, manages our whole office and we have, um, just under 50 employees. So we, you know, from where we were 12 years ago, I would kind of like, how did, how did this all happen so quickly? And, you know, we, uh, we put our heads down and worked hard, but our word of mouth in the Boston area, uh, spread very good for us. And, you know, a lot of that is due to the brotherhood of the veteran community, the police, the, the fire department, the uh, local municipal, uh, cities and town employees. Cause when I, when I started my business, Broke Oil, I always had in the back of my head, that I'm going to give every everybody who's a veteran, police officer, fireman, anybody who serves, municipal worker, they're all getting a discount. Even teachers get a discount. So I, I went around to all these cities and towns to let them know I'm, you know, just a fireman that's starting a business, and I want to make sure I take care of the people who serve our communities every day and give them a discount for you know their heating oil needs. So uh, that that's you know, how I got going and I was always brought up because my whole family was veterans and civil servants is that you, you know, take care of those who take care of you. So that's how, um, that's how we kind of started with Broca Oil and that's kind of why we got to where we are today. That's awesome. That's a fantastic success story. And I like the, um, what do you say that we take care of people who take, say that again? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we we take care the people that serve us. We we serve them by you know yeah. we give them discounts and you know we try to do especially now that we you know at, in the beginning it was tough because the first five years of being in business it's those are your make or break years that yeah. you're not collecting a paycheck and you know you almost say you're working for free uh, especially the first two years. So I, I me or my wife didn't collect a check and you know there were tough times because we're you know and everybody was looking at us like, you guys are starting an oil company. I'm like, not thinking it's crazy, but people were looking at us like it was crazy because you just, you know, oil, that's crazy. It's, you know, but it wasn't as crazy as, you know, everybody seems to think. We would mm -hmm. start off just doing heating oil, but, you know, to where we are now, yeah, I would say it, it might have been a little crazy. I, I, 
you know, we activate, you know, bought a property up in Haverhill, Massachusetts. And, you know, now we activated a railroad switch and we have product coming in off the railroad. So those, these are things that when I was starting, if I look to where we are at in the business now, I'd say, no, there's no way. And this, I try to share my story because for veterans, because I, I would be the first one to say, if, hey, if I could do it, anybody can do it. You know, if you just put your head down and, and just work hard, like so many good things can happen. You just got to block out the background noise and just put your head down and just work. Definitely. Was there anything when you came home, um, was there anything that was unexpected? Not, not really. I wouldn't say, I, I mean, to tell you the truth, the military prepares you to expect anything. So that's where I think our mindsets were, you know, my mindset was changed from previously to coming out, everybody's like, wow, you are just a different person. You're more motivated. Before I might see something and say, oh, that's an obstacle. I don't think I want to take that challenge on or it's too risky. Coming out of the military, I honestly, if I saw an obstacle, I looked at it as a challenge and I just try to sprint right through that. Um, And I try to do that with everything I do is don't be afraid to take risks. You know, and if you, and if you take a risk and you fail, you get back up and you do it again. And the military really gave me that confidence to, to keep going. Like when things get tough, you know, just keep going. Cause it can only get better. If you feel like you're at a bottom, good. Cause the only way to go is up. For sure. So the Patriots didn't teach you that lesson. The military taught you that lesson. <laughs> well, sure, the Patriots did because they started winning Super Bowls when I was going in. So, you know, they were coming out of a, a rut. But yeah, yeah my, my, minus, when they, minus when they played the Giants. I mean, let's just okay. put that out there. <laughs> yeah, I know. That was a tough, that was a tough loss. I'll, I'll say that one. I, that one still stings me. So both of them, right? That's what happens when you play the best football team in the world. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, just the man, the Manning brothers, uh, they got us in, in two ways. So that was the tough one. Hey, Bob, um, you talk a lot about brotherhood. You talk a lot about like, uh, especially with firefighting. Uh, do you, uh, do you feel that serving is something that gives you resiliency as a veteran that has served or, or makes you feel complete. Uh, so uh, let me go back before that question and just say like our veterans are struggling for belonging. They're struggling for, you know, um, things to do that have value in the sense of what they used to do and they find themselves yep. just not complete. How, how it has your journey uh, been different? Like, Talk about, if you will, the brotherhood, uh, being part of a team with your oil company and being on the the fire department and different organizations that you serve with to include Homeland Heroes. So, you know, I I fell into a really good place of, you know, of a team that involved, you know, a lot of veterans and my old man, when he served in the fire department and my uncle was also a firefighter, there was always a group of veterans and, you know, when you have other guys that have done what you've done, you know, that makes these veterans feel comfortable. So a lot of the veterans are, you know, just a regular hardworking guy. So you'll see them in most of these blue collar jobs. Um, you know, you have your rare, you know, white collar suit and tie veteran workers. 
you know, and they, but they still have the mentality and they get it done, you know, just with hard work. So I think it, it, it's a good atmosphere for any veteran. And, you know, I was fortunate to have a department that had, you know, all these new veterans coming on as the Vietnam era was just retiring. So uh, um, those are the ones I say that got to the veterans coming home. Like it's a great place for you guys. Um, you'll fit right in with what you were used to in the military, no matter what branch you served in, um, because it is a paramilitary structure. So, and we respond to calls and we help people and it's, it's everything, you know, and they keeps their excitement and, you know, it keeps them engaged, which is important because these guys are used to a certain mode and operating at that mode. And then when they come home, and if they're sitting behind a desk, that's that's usually not the mode that they're used to. They want to they want to be you know making a difference every day. So I I think you know anything in the emergency response world, uh, even you know being a nurse, um, EMT, those are great positions for them as well. So it, it was it was a good um, good atmosphere to bring any veteran into. Like, and how important is it for you to develop a team in your company and make people feel included like a unit did in the military? So it, it's been easy to implement because we started off with just me and my wife. And as you know, we'd gain an employee, um, you know, I would do all the hiring. So I'd make sure, you know, I select not just the, the skill set, but I'd also select a personality that would match our company culture. So you know, being in that hiring process and I'm still, you know, I still do do most of the hiring. I've kind of delegated that to our, you know, signed an operations manager. Um, but he understands how I work and how our culture is. He's, he's not a veteran, but, you know, having somebody that at least has that mindset and knows what, what we strive for here. Um, so it's been easy to implement. And now I'm at a good point now where I can actually start recruiting um, veterans that really have no experience, but are, if they're willing to learn and willing to work hard, I could take them in at an apprentice level because we have so many different things other than oil delivery that we're doing. Uh, we, we're, we're doing uh, railroad work. Um, we have actually have a railroad project going on right now where we're, we're going to be building a uh, 600-foot railroad track additional to our current one and so we have some pretty cool jobs that are opening up and i'm going to use your podcast to do a little recruitment for anybody that knows a veteran that might be looking for a job to send them my way because a lot of opportunities up in Haverhill, massachusetts for these guys if they are just willing to come to work on time and and work hard so I'll, uh, I'll put that out into the world through your podcast, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. Not at all. Hi, this is Bob Brown from Broke Oil, and I'm just reaching out to all the veteran community and letting you guys know that we are a veteran-owned company, and we have open doors for any veteran that's looking for a job opportunity. I want to direct you guys to our website at www.brokeoil.com. And drop us a note. I want to get to know you guys, what your story is, and see if there's an opportunity for me to get you guys in here as we're growing uh, across New England. So please check us out. Apply, inquire. If you need any assistance, you can call the main line uh, and ask for me, Bob Brown. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you. 
Awesome. Yeah. So if anyone in the Massachusetts Haverhill area is looking for a job, um, check them out. So veteran unemployment. Message me on the on the website. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So veteran unemployment is something that is a hot topic and being an employer and being a veteran that has sought jobs. Uh, what would be some advice you'd have for our brothers and sisters that are getting out of the military and like, Hey, uh, what, what is next for me? Uh, how do, what would be the advice for interviews or even finding a job? And can you talk, talk to us about that a little bit. Yeah. And, and it kind of varies from state to state. Uh, Cause some states aren't as veteran friendly as they should be. Massachusetts is a great state for being veteran friendly because we have a very big initiative to hire veterans through all these good state programs that they, you know, activated through helmets, to hard hats and other various, you know, even I offer people that knows of a veteran coming home to contact me because, you know, I, I like to first sit down and see what, what their interests are and, you know, make sure that I'm steering them in the right direction, but there's so many good tools. And if you have a good network and a few people that you can, you know, talk to one-on-one, they can help you really develop a good strategy for you to get to, you know, where you want to be. So a lot of these uh, kids don't know that they can take advantage of all the post 11 GI bill benefits. Um, you know, certain kids have a tough time, you know, that got hurt in the military getting their dis- disability status and vocational rehabilitation programs, which, you know, fund a good portion of a school beyond your post 9-11 GI Bill benefits. Because, you know, that when that runs out, it's kind of capped off. But there's other ways that, you know, the military will help you pursue you know, your goal through education if if you ran out of money and needed to find more funding. Um, so it's just knowing who to go to. But um, the civil service uh, route in Massachusetts is really good. And every city in town usually has um, a public safety sector that will, and a veteran liaison that will help them find a job with whatever interest um, interests them. So, I always tell them to look at that route, but I personally try to steer all these guys that are coming home from manual labor positions to, you know, take, take the firefighter entrance exam because they give you absolute preference. You get veterans preference, which puts you to the top of the list over civilians. So, you know, now you're just competing amongst veterans and not just a whole city worth of civilians taking a test. So, uh, just to have no p- kids don't know that they can get that preference, um, which you know, is it pretty much guarantees you a job if you know you can pass the physical and medical exam. But you have to pass it first. But uh, a lot of these guys have no problem passing it. That really and now that, that's another thing that that I always open up, and you know I'm on the phone a lot with you know kids I've never met in person. It's just someone's you know, says, Hey, you know, I know this guy that, you know, would love to, you know, just get some advice. And I say, yeah, give him my cell phone number, have him give me a call. I don't mind, you know, if I can help anybody out, you know, that's what, what we're all here for. A- any veteran that, you know, has served is usually the same way. We're very willing to help others. Is there anything you miss about active service? 
Not, not that I know of. I, I mean, other than just kind of coming, you know, everybody when I was in the military was wondering what motivated me. And when I told you about, you know, being in a leadership position in boot camp, and then you know, I, I made petty officer very quickly in the military, and I carried that up back on, um, you know, not just starting my business, but you know, I, beca- you know, became a lieutenant at you know twenty six and a captain twenty nine. So uh, a lot of these going against the tide with certain people that would tell you, oh no, don't take the test for at least fifteen years and. I'm on the other end of the spectrum telling these guys, especially veterans, take the test. You, you're already, you're already case hardened. You're proven. You, you know, you can lead in crisis. Leadership in crisis is the biggest thing that we do. So these guys that are just getting out looking to advance themselves, I tell them, do not, do not let anybody tell you to, you know, you should wait this. It's like, no, he can, that other guy can wait that time. If you want to take that, take it now and, and, you know, that's your life. So, you know, I try to get guys that are not just want to be firemen and policemen, but tell them, guys, take the promotional exam. You're already great leaders from coming in the mil- from being in the military. You can apply it here. It's going to work perfect. Mm. Do you find that a lot of people will be hesitant to do that uh, largely because uh, they don't know how their military experience actually measures up to corporate America or fire department stuff? Uh, and, and your yes. encouragement to, to do this is helpful for that. Yeah. And, and this is one thing where I'll say my, my uncle more so uh, than my father, because my father was a super hardworking guy, but he, uh, he was a tree arborist on the side. He had a side job while he was on the fire department. So he never had time to study and, you know, do promotional exam. But my uncle, uh, he was a captain and he was also a very, you know, young lieutenant, young captain coming out of Vietnam. And, you know, he did a full year out, out in the field there. So, um, you know, him coming back to the fire department, it's like, this is a cakewalk. I mean, if you can lead in that situation, this is, this is absolutely perfect because, you know, the toughest thing you're ever going to do is most likely going to be what you did overseas, not back here, you know, fire fire building fires are unpredictable but you know at least you're not getting shot at so all, all these guys coming in they i think they you know they're, they're younger guys and they'll taking these jobs and you know they just don't want the senior guys you know looking down on them at all but again i'm the type that say says you know no you take that exam like these certain people will lift you up and that's what the veteran community does it's like you know motivates them and supports them to pursue that stuff and not holds them back like some civilians would do and say, Oh, you should wait for that. It's like, no, you were, you were 18 years old signing that blank check for the military to put you wherever you want. They want in the world. I said, you're more mature than anybody. And you, you know, you learn super quick. And some of these kids that serve for four years, you know, have, you know, seen a lot. So I always say, take the test. You are more than ready to do it and just motivate guys to, you know, not be afraid to, you know, go against the grain, so to say. Definitely. So that was my only, my only last piece I wanted to share just to, you know, let the veterans and the, you know, everybody know that, you know, you got a good support group everywhere you go, but never, never let people hold you back, especially, you know, people that haven't done and, been where 
you know, these guys have been. Absolutely. And I was going to ask you, what advice would you give, um, to someone enlisting or someone coming home? But I think, um, you gave a pretty good answer, but could you summarize just real quick the advice you would give someone to first someone enlisting into the military and then secondly, someone coming home from the military? Yes. For somebody enlisting in the military, I'd, I'd always say, you know, enlist and go in, you know, with a purpose. If you want to, you know, serve infantry and be in the field, do that. Do, if you want to learn a trade, select that position. If you want to carry it on the outside, but, you know, select something that you're going to love to do because there's nothing worse than doing something that you don't want to do. So there's plenty of jobs in the military and they'll support anything you want to do. You just have to tell them what job you're interested in before you sign the paper. Because once when that's signature, it's tough to change, you know, your job rating. But, um, and people that are more or less spinning the wheels and not really knowing if college is the way to go and, you know, they're not really looking at the military. I tell everybody in that situation, to definitely look at the military because if anything, it's going to give you a sense of purpose, a sense of duty and responsibility, um, ownership of, you know, you just learn a lot of life lessons just by serving. And there's really no downfall to, to serve in the military. And honestly, everything has been a positive, um, for my sake and for a lot of the other guys coming out, there's a large support group and plenty of, um, you know, education assistance. So there's, there's really a lot of tools they can use to better themselves in the future. And for the guys coming out or even in, I always tell them start, you know, developing an exit strategy prior to leaving and figure out where you want to live first and, and see what job you want to do and then start, you know, taking those tests or, you know, going to school while you're in the military to get a degree so you can get into the job placement that you want. So um, I always tell guys to have, you know, a good exit plan, you know, developed. And then if you don't have an exit plan and you're already out and, you know, you're not happy with where you're at, uh, I'd look at doing exactly what, you know, I did, which was the civil service route or uh, look at the SBA, which helps, you know, veterans, you know, small business uh, lending programs. If you think you want to, start your own business. Uh, There's a lot of good tools and there's awesome veteran networks of small business owners that would help out anybody that's even thinking about starting a business. And, you know, me being included in that list, I I open all my doors to any veteran that would ever want advice or just talk or, you know, need employment. So um, my door is always open for those guys as well. So that's, that's the piece of advice I would give. That's awesome. All right. So I've got, um, well, before I ask, I got two more questions for you, but Art, do you have any other things you wanted to ask? Bob? Yeah, no, I just want to thank you for the, you know, the work that you've done, the trail that you blazed, uh, you make it sound easy. And I'm sure there's uh, people listening. They're like, wow, uh, that he makes it sound so easy, but I'm facing uh, numerous challenges. And while you had a positive experience and, I'm not taking that away from you at all. I'm so glad that you did. There's a lot of people out there that have had really terrible experiences uh, and I'm sure we'll, we'll interview them as well. So it's good to hear your side of the story. Um, 
I was going to say, so I, I helped out and he's one of my best friends now, but th- this was a kid that was in the army and he got out and he was, um, yeah, Hispanic. He he would have been the first Hispanic firefighter ever hired by Salem, Massachusetts Fire Department. He'd be awesome to have on your show, by the way, if you, because he is the most giving person ever. He's a fireman now, but they uh, bypassed him, and then he had called me and said, "Oh yeah, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm gonna take this uh, job, and he was gonna be, you know, be a hairdresser and something else." And I said, wait a minute, they bypassed you for what? He was number one on the list. And I said, no, 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 that, fuck that. I said, you got to put it in an appeal. And he's like, I don't have lawyer fees. I was like, I'm going to represent you because like, there's, there's no way you're going to get bypassed. You're more deserving. And long story short, we got, we got his, you know, their decision overturned. And he ended up being hired as Salem Mass's first um, Hispanic firefighter. Wow. That's so good. Yeah, and I, I throw that one out there because because he was the one who was like, I didn't want to ruffle feathers. I'm like, nope. I'm like, you, that's an obstacle. You gotta you gotta run through that because that was it was bullshit. What they were trying to bypass him on because someone's son was on the list, you know. Right, right. So it's so motivating to hear you talk about advocating for other veterans. Uh, how rewarding is that for you? Oh yeah, that's. I said if I could have a full time just doing that, and my wife always tells me like you, you know, when you go into certain situations, you know, they're like, you know, who are you? And I'm I don't really have a title, you know, other than just like you said, being an advocate. But it's like I'm here to support this guy and make sure that the right thing's done for him because you know he served our country and you know there's no need for him to ever be wrongfully bypassed or you know some. It's just you usually. You know, it takes that one person to stand up and, you know, call someone out before they realize, yeah, they, they, they can't do that. And it was wrong. And, uh, you know, just being part of the veteran, you know, veteran community and having that support. And I'm sure others would do that for me. So I, uh, it, it's a sense of fulfillment that I get just by knowing, you know, you can help somebody. And like I said, you, you know, people have a very strong card they can hold for some of these veterans because, you know, these guys that are in a tough way, it's like you can give them a break or whatever, you know, not even a break, but give them an opportunity and let them, you know, persevere and, you know, do great things. Or you could, you know, not give them a break or, you know, decline a job. And sometimes it's a very hard and fast, slippery slope that these guys go down. So I always try to put that in the front of people's heads to say, guys, like, you know, you, you could do something really good or you, you could do something that, you know, would, would kind of send this guy, you know, into a spiral, you know, cause a lot of these guys come back and, you know, if they get a DU, you know, a DUI that hangs over their head, um, because they're dealing with something that they should be getting help for. Uh, that's when I try to, you know, step in and say, you know, this guy needs a second chance. Like he can't have this on, hanging over him because he made a mistake and he's dealing with something that not a lot of us people, especially civilians would ever even understand. Absolutely. And that's why programs like the Homeland Heroes Foundation are so important. Um, and we're as being, being a volunteer on the Homeland Heroes. Um, I'm glad to have you in our corner. Yeah. Anything you guys need. I mean, you, you know, I'll always be there. So. And we'll be there for you. <laughs> Yep. No, you already have. So (laughs) that's why I'm here tonight. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it.
Yeah. Thank you for joining us and thank you for sharing your story. Um, and continuing to serve and help people. Um, that's super commemorable and honorable of you. So, um, happy to have you as a service member, happy to have you as a part of the human race doing some good for the world. Thank you. Um, bravo Zulu, bravo Zulu. (laughs) Thank you. I'm trying. We'll we'll try to keep it going. All right. One last question for you. And then we're going to have to, uh, log off for the night, but, um, it's how we end all of our shows or at least how we've started to end all of our shows. Um, if you had to do it all over again, Bob, would you? Yes. I do it all over again. I would have done it sooner. I would have done it right after high school. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have wasted almost two years of just, you know, being a derelict in college, trying to do something that I definitely wasn't at that time, you know, shouldn't have been doing. So yes, I would do it all over again in a heartbeat. Probably wouldn't have been as sweet though, if you didn't have those couple of years of being derelict. <laughs> no, no. I looked back and I said, I kind of needed to be a mess in my life for a little bit to realize, you know, okay, this is a bad spot. And if you continue doing this, it's most likely, you know, you're not going to really get ahead much in life. So, uh, you need to feel, you need, you really need to feel that to, in order to appreciate where that was and promise yourself that you'll never be at that low point ever again. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Bob, again, for joining us and sharing your story. Art, thanks for joining us again tonight as well. Um, thank Always you for- a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us for the last part of Bob's story. This podcast is brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation, an organization dedicated to the reacclimation support of active duty service members, veterans, and their families in their time of need. To learn more, visit homelandheroesfoundation.org. Thank you to our production team at DairyCam, creating connection through story for a better world. Learn more by visiting dairycam.org. Thank you for listening and make sure you subscribe to the Homeland Hero Salute wherever you listen to podcasts.